Okay, everyone, I hope I'm speaking loudly enough and projecting my voice uh, well enough. If not, uh, the sound people are going to uh, help us out and uh, perhaps uh, turn some things up. I readjusted, or I adjusted this, so maybe it's a little better now. So we're going to continue here. Lively faith. Lively faith is about uh, a thou claiming me, wounding my heart, wounding my heart in a way that I want to be with this. I want to give my life to this person who is claiming my heart. And that this is the place of encounter and we just saw from Benedict that the affective level is important. That this encounter doesn't happen by me figuring it out. Okay, I'm going to make that happen again. But uh, the affective dimension is important and uh, we'll uh, open that up more uh, eventually. Here's St. Ambrose. He tells you also that every place is a place of prayer, though our Savior says, go into your room. But by room, you must understand, not a room enclosed by walls that imprison your body, but the room that is within you, the room where you hide your thoughts, where you keep your affections. So the heart now, according to Ambrose, where this encounter happens, is the storage place of my thoughts, of my affections. This room of prayer is always with you wherever you are and is always a secret room where only God can see you. So we're starting to get more and more glimpses, right, at what this lively faith is about with this encounter. Somehow, my thoughts and my affections are a major part of this. The faithful expect only one thing from priests. This is Benedict XVI. Brother priest, I trust you agree with me that Benedict XVI has said many true things. This is not one of them. The faithful expect 101 things from priests. <laughs> not only one. But we know what he's trying to say. The faithful expect only one thing from priests. This is such a beautiful statement. Talk about focusing a priest's life. They expect priests to be specialists in promoting this encounter. That a priest is a specialist at how these hearts come close and stay with each other. Driving down here yesterday on I-94, I saw a billboard. It said, think, when you think heart experts, think us, Sanford Health. Should be, when you think heart experts, think us, Catholic priests. <laughs> I'm at a Donald Trump rally. <laughs> Dear people, do you see? 
Do you see how this is so different than following rules? The priesthood is about teaching a heart how to be in love. And because of that, because of that love, it converts one's life. Rules without relationship results in rebellion. Rules without relationship results in rebellion. Relationship makes rules something I desire so I can be with. The effectiveness of pastoral action depends ultimately on prayer. Otherwise, service becomes empty activism. Therefore, the time spent in direct encounter with God in prayer can rightly be described as the pastoral priority par excellence. Brother priests, for us to talk about lively faith without pastors, without pastors engaging in this, we're just spitting in the wind. Lively faith starts by a bishop and priests whose hearts are in love with Christ. And that love is real every day. Otherwise, we become rule makers, moralism, and that ain't attractive. In Minokin, where I was born, ain't is a word, so. Awakened heart. So now here's what I describe as the mark of a lively faith. Lively faith is the fruit of the lived experience of God's intimate and personal love within one's heart. Lively faith is the fruit of the lived experience of God's intimate and personal love within one's heart. And this experience claims the person. Lively faith comes from the lived experience of God's intimate love, his closeness within my heart. By this point, I had been working on this PowerPoint for about eight hours. And just to try to keep myself interested, I got silly. And the anonymous person who thinks he is an expert is me. That's my own quote. Just trying to keep it real, everyone. This experience can be described as an awakened heart. What that young man on that video was describing, dear people, he kept saying understood, understood, understood. He didn't understand what was really happening entirely. What he was experiencing for the first time, his heart was awakening to the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. A presence that's real. A presence that is love incarnate. Up until that point, he had been standing under Niagara Falls with water gushing over him. And now that day, he finally opened his mouth and tasted some of the water. 
This experience can be described as an awakened heart. The awakened heart yearns for God. The awakened heart needs the love of God. The awakened heart goes to Mass. The same, for the same reason, my brother Patrick went to the library to see the cute pianist. He wanted her. The awakened heart wants God. Needs God. Without it, life is not enjoyable. So up until this point, my, Patrick, my brother's life was enjoyable. He loved college, loved his buddies, loved what he was studying. But once that happened, he was wounded. And if that relationship would have been lost and he couldn't be with her, what was once enjoyable is now no longer that enjoyable. The awakened heart enjoys life only with this relationship. Your love is better than life. That's why Christ gave up his life. He was giving it up for something better. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart will not rest until it rests in you. The experience of awakened hearts is relationship, identity, mission. Everything is about the relationship. It flows from and returns to the relationship. Do you remember the road to Emmaus? When they met the risen Christ, the two guys walking, you remember that? Right? Gospel of Luke. They were talking. Christ comes uh, close to them. Talks with them. He opens up the scriptures to them. He breaks bread with them. And then it says, after this encounter, were not our hearts burning within us? Did you notice they didn't say, wow, were we given a lot of great information today. Whoa, I feel a lot more educated. We're not our hearts burning within us. While he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us. Listen to this, dear people. As you know, this is St. Augustine from his confessions. The body has how many senses? The heart has five senses too. And you'll find all five of them in Augustine as he describes his heart being awakened. God, you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant for you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me 
and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. That's an awakened heart. That's lively faith. That's a heart that is not alone. That's a heart that's not going to mass because it has to. Awakened hearts equals lively parishes. In my opinion, what's evangelization about? It's about awakening the heart to God's love. That young man on that video is at a crucial, beautiful stage, and I trust there's some priest in his life who can help him. Help him understand that and keep going with what's going on in his heart. For him to say, Jesus, what you're doing I love. I want more. I want more. I want to see you at the library. Do you want me to give up something so I can have you all the time? I will. I want you. Awakened hearts is what makes lively parishes and evangelization preaching is about awakening the heart to the reality that every baptized person is swimming in. I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. An awakened heart leads to a fuller, not lesser embracing of the faith of the church. Loving the heart of the revealer leads to loving what is revealed. So we don't need to be afraid of this. Brother Priest, we don't need to be afraid that we're going to make a bunch of bleeding hearts who are going to leave the truth of the faith. That an awakened heart makes the heart more orthodox, embrace the truth more. However, orthodoxy is not enough. As a young priest, I think I thought it was. It's not. One can give intellectual assent to ideas. The heart needs to fall in love, not with an idea, but with the person of Jesus. Crush that. Next, being a Christian, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. A wonderful, brilliant person once read this in this chapel. But the encounter with an event, a person which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. So, dear people, when you think, what, what does that look like in flesh and blood? What I described with my brother. He had an encounter with a person which gave his life a new horizon and a decisive direction. And that's what happens in the awakened heart. Pope Francis, our culture has lost its sense of God's tangible presence and activity in our world. 
We think that God is to be found in the beyond on another level of reality, far removed from our everyday relationships. This is in Lumen Fide, paragraph 17, guys. Our culture has lost its sense of God's tangible presence. What can be experienced. God's heartfelt presence. His concrete presence. People get bored at Mass because they have lost faith that they could actually experience and encounter and enter into what's occurring there. It is to be found in the beyond, on another level of reality, far removed from our everyday relationships. But if this were the case, listen to this radical statement Pope Francis is saying. If this were the case, it would make no difference at all whether we believe in him or not. Here's another, here's another flag post. Lively faith isn't, li- faith isn't lively unless it expects to tangibly experience God. In my heart. Whoops. On the con- Christians, on the contrary, profess their faith in God's tangible and powerful love, which really does act in history and determines its final destiny. Huh? So sanctity is about union with God, giving my life to him. Imagine you married people expecting to get married without that being claimed in you. I mean, that would be abusive. To expect two people to commit to that kind of union, that kind of commitment, without a tangible and powerful love entering them. But somehow God expects us to give give our lives to him, and he isn't going to give us a tangible, powerful experience of his love? He would be mean. But we've resigned ourselves to, won't happen to me. Oh, it happens to Sister Barbara, Sister Carol, the Pope, our good bishop, but not an average guy like me. That is dead faith. A love that can be encountered, a love fully revealed in Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. We're not going to show the video. The end. (laughs) So, given all that, and I'm supposed to stand up here till like 11.15 or 11.30, is that true? 11.15. Good. Okay, everyone. On to um, topic two. So given all that, given all that, 
that my, I'm proposing to you lively faith is about intimacy between my heart and God's. And because of that closeness claiming me, he will get me to deny myself whatever I need to. He will convert my heart. He will convert my heart by making me want him, needing him. Because I don't want to lose this. Because it's what, it's better than life. And so, how does this work? I want to start from God's heart. What is God's fundamental, foundational initiative? How does he initiate this? And so, where do our hearts meet? And what is my choice, then, to meet him there? I understand it's really ambitious, but we're going to try. Okay? And I want to tie it into the year of mercy, and since I'm a missionary of mercy, I thought I should be uh, speaking from this lens anyway. So, the heart of God and how he comes close to us. And then the choice we have to come close to him and let that closeness happen will be my third uh, talk. But uh, God's heart, how does it come close to us? I think nothing describes it better than through the lens of mercy. So I want, to cover, I want to cover two words, two words um, in our tradition for mercy. I have five, but I don't have time for five. I'm just going to cover one New Testament word. When the, when the mercy of God that was in Yahweh in the Old Testament was going on in the human heart of Jesus, what was that like? There's a Greek word used 12 times in the Synoptic Gospels. I want to cover that. And then the word in our Latin tradition. So the first word in our Latin tradition, as you all know, it's misericordia. Misericordia. It's a com compound word. Misericordia. And it's straightforward. Mercy means misery. And then cordia comes from the root Corde for, for heart. So mercy is about a heart for misery, a heart for the poor, a heart for the suffering, a heart for the lowly. So here's the good news, everyone. I trust I will have to guard myself from socks being blown off right now. The good news is God's heart, which is a heart of mercy, comes close to you. Wants to be intimate with you where you experience misery. Where you experience need. Where you are lowly and not enough where you are poor. Where does this encounter that makes lively faith 
that awakens the heart. It's in the very place where if you had a magic wand, you would get rid of it. So do you know why, do you see now why the encounter with God is so hard for us? He's loving the very thing we're rejecting in ourselves. He doesn't come close to you where you're good looking. And I don't see too many of you, by the way. Where you're brilliant. Where you're great. He has a heart for misery. Twas always thus. Yahweh saying to the people of Israel, it's not because you were the greatest of nations that I chose you. It was because you were the most insignificant. And your insignificance claimed my heart. And so coming to lively faith is about falling in love and that is about you now having a conversion on how you see this place that you run from and God is waiting there. The place that you hate about yourself. If you need um, clearer directions, more uh, strong neon signs, where you feel shame. You want to have a lively faith? Don't run from that place. Because that's where it happens. So do you see how we run from the very place God is waiting and close and intimate, wanting to be with us? He wants to be with the way Patrick wanted to be with Denise. He wants to be with us in misery. Why do you think he leapt down from heaven? He looked down and saw misery. He didn't look down and say, wow, are they a great group of people. I want to be associated with them. He said, they're a mess. My people are a mess. I'm going to come close to them. Now, of course, of course, dear people, the first place, huh? like water going to the lowest spot, God's mercy, his heart. The first place mercy goes is, is for the forgiveness of sins where you and I, where you and I have rejected God, where you and I have said, I don't want you, I want my own will, I want to do my own thing. And now my heart's contrite. 
he gushes like a fire hydrant to that spot. That's the first place the heart of God comes close. That is the wedding bed for him. But what I have found doing my missionary of mercy work these last few weeks, people have limited their understanding to God's mercy to just that. Where I have sinned, that's where mercy applies to me. But just that. No, his mercy is way beyond that. Huh? Think about you moms and dads with your kids. Did your mercy to your children only apply to when they knowingly did wrong? Uh-uh. When they got sick, you showed them great mercy. When they skinned their knee, you showed them great mercy. And so his mercy applies to what I call existential misery. What you and I suffer simply being human beings, creatures. Pope John Paul II, in his Divis in Misericordia, which I believe is the most comprehensive magisterial document on the mercy of God, Divis in Misericordia, rich in mercy, he says in the resurrection... Jesus himself was shown a radical mercy by the Father. Jesus was shown mercy. Mary was shown mercy. And not because they needed sins forgiven, but because they were poor. They were in need. And we have them all over. You feel alone. That's a misery. And you can bet God's mercy floods there. He did it in Genesis. It's the first thing. It's not good for the man to be alone. He looks down and sees a heart that feels alone, and he wants to come close to it. You don't connect with your, with your spouse or your kids the way you would like. There's a terrible suffering in that. Every day I suffer from this, I should enjoy, I should, I should be more grateful than I am. I am so blessed. Why am I not more grateful? And there's a suffering in that. praying the rosary and getting done and realizing that you didn't pay attention one second for the entire rosary. There's a misery in that. Going bald at a young age. There's a misery in that. Huh, the seventh grade girl who doesn't fit in. Oh, is there a profound... Imagine how God's heart wants to come close to that precious person. But you know full well she's hating herself there. Where you feel insecure... Huh, the suffering of I have to address a conflict... 
and the suffering that's in one self there. On and on and on, this misery. Now listen, if we're not turning and we're not receiving the loving, tangible presence of the Lord in those, when we really mess up, right, if mom doesn't kiss your knee when you skin it, when you're sick, she doesn't come and show you great comfort, when you spill your milk, she doesn't show you understanding, when you really mess up, do you think you're going to run to her then? If we limit God's mercy to the forgiveness of sins, we don't really get excited about it for the forgiveness of sins. And so, the foundational initiative of God's movement in this intimate encounter is Him looking in me. Huh? So Patrick saw something in Denise. And that's what faith is about. It's about a light seeing something that draws my heart to it and claims it. What claims God's heart is my poverty. My need. My suffering. My misery. That's what makes him fall in love with me. Wow, should that give us consolation. But it doesn't surprise you, right? That's how you moms and dads work with your kids. When I got sick, my mother showed me the greatest closeness. When I was sick is when she came most close to me. Not when I won the spelling bee in fourth grade, which was a pretty big deal, by the way. <laughs> Would have made any parent beam with pride. Second, so Jesus tells St. Jesus tells Faustina, I am mercy incarnate. So he is concrete mercy. To touch Jesus is to touch mercy. To eat the Eucharist is to eat mercy. It's to eat mercy. We eat mercy. So Jesus is mercy all the time, everywhere. However, in his manifestation of concrete acts of mercy in the Gospels. There's a Greek verb that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John use to describe at specific concrete demonstrations of the merciful love of God in the human heart of Jesus through it. And that Greek verb, I love this, is splachnitzomai. Isn't that beautiful? 
have beer and brats, say the word splachnitzamai, it just fits, it's like a good song. So splachnitzamai, it's 12 times, it's uh, five times in Matthew, four times in Mark, three times in Luke. It is normally translated, in the New American Bible, it is translated, his heart was moved with pity. Seeing the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them. Because they were like a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart was moved with pity. Splach nitzomai. However, the root of that word, that Greek word, is splachna. The spelling, I saw two different spellings. I think the most trusted spelling, and this is what, um, this, by the way, everyone where I ran into this, this comes from Pope Francis' latest book-length interview called The Name of God is Mercy. He talks about splachnitzomai in there. Um, but the root is splachna, which means guts, internal organs. So, if ever there was a Richter version translation of the Bible, Instead of his heart was moved with pity, the more accurate description of what is going on as the mercy of God is taking hold of the heart of Jesus is he was sick to his stomach with compassion. His guts were tight with pity. He had cramps of compassion. Now, dear people, that is what's going on in the heart of God as he beholds your misery. Now, imagine the person who sees the heart of God that way, how they go to prayer compared to the person who doesn't. If I, in faith, behold God in his splachnitzomai toward me, now what I bring to prayer is really different. And how I bring it is really different. Splachnitzomai. Every time I give this talk, I find it, uh, as many excuses as I can to just say the word again and again. <laughs> just for your own edification, Jesus basically did five different things out of these intense cramps of compassion. By the way, 
where do you see that? Uh, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes back, remember? And it says this, the father, filled with compassion, ran out to meet him. The Greek is, the father, splachnitsomai, ran out to meet him. The good Samaritan, who took care of the man in the ditch, the good Samaritan coming by saw the man, and splachnitsomai went over and poured oil into his wounds. This splachnitsomai is what brings one close to the other in their suffering. This splachnitsomai is what's behind the closeness of the hearts, the intimacy. If God's heart was metal, our need, our misery would be the magnet. But pride, huh? that's why only humble people can receive God, because pride rejects that part of the person. Where I'm proud, I reject the very place God comes close to me. Anyway, he does five things. There's basically five categories um, that uh, this Splach Nitsumai does. The first is this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus was moved with, his heart was moved with pity for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he taught them. Mercy teaches. Mercy teaches right from wrong, good and bad. It's not unmerciful to tell someone that's not good for you. Mom would tell us don't run with scissors because of her splock nitsomai. A priest who's merciful teaches, not harshly. But about this, this relationship is your pearl of great price. And that's why the Catholic Church, huh, still teaches every single day. The church is obsessed with teaching. Why? Because it's Jesus' splachnitsomai. The Catholic Church started universities. That's why we shed all these blood, sweat, and tears over Catholic schools. Jesus looks down at this world of relativism and he's sick to his stomach. They're like sheep without a shepherd and so he wants to teach them. And so we need to teach. Second, second, you remember the multiplication of the loaves, his heart was moved with pity for them. The second thing his, he does is feeds. He feeds. And I just gave you now the two essential acts of God in the liturgy. Every Mass, he teaches through his word and he feeds. It's still the heart of God coming close to us. 
He feeds. Huh? And that's why in 2,000 years, Jesus' splachnitzomai has inspired religious order after religious order after religious order to feed the poor. That's why it's so good for a par- the lively parish to have something, the St. Vincent de, uh, de Paul Society, whatever, outreach. He feeds. In the end, Brother Priest, right, it was his splachnitzomai to feed his people that made him choose us. He so deeply wants to feed that he says, will you give me your flesh so I can feed them? The third, he forgave. He still does. I just came from Wisconsin, dropped down in uh, Bismarck on Saturday, jumped in my car, came down here yesterday, but I was in Wisconsin for three days at a parish doing a mission. On Friday, there were seven hours of confessions scheduled. It was nonstop for eight hours and 15 minutes. These people wanting the forgiveness of Christ and him bringing it and they encountering him. Bringing their shame to him where they experience intimacy with him. If one can be humble enough to do that. Huh, he forgave. You married people still experience this, right? If there's tension between you, your guts are tight until that's resolved. It's splachnitzomai. That's a great word. <laughs> right? I mean, just the word. You don't even have to say anything great if you just say it a couple of times. People like what you said. Fourth, you could, you could guess this one. He heals. His heart was moved for pity, with pity for the crowd. And so they brought him all this, his, their sick, and he cured them, healed them one by one. The mercy of Christ makes us want to heal people and largely heal them around lies that say you're alone, you're not enough, you're a failure. You got to be more, and then God will come and get you. To heal them, so the anointing of the sick, Catholic hospitals, nursing homes, care centers, do you see the mercy of Christ is alive and well in, its, in, her, in his body today? Lastly, the least obvious one, the least obvious one, but it's very beautiful. There's one time it says his heart was moved with pity for the crowd because they were like sheep without shepherd and so he turned to his followers and said, pray to the master of the harvest. 
to send out laborers to gather in the harvest. One of the, one of the movements of his Splach Nitzomai was to beg God for vocations. To beg God to send people who will give up their life so that their flesh can be the source of his splach nitzomai. And so any parish that is alive, all of these should be happening. This is the heart of Jesus. And any parish that is living in that heart should be moved the way his heart was moved. To teach, to feed, to forgive, to heal, and to beg God for more feeders, more forgivers, more healers, more... uh, Whatever else. It's time for lunch. Name the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father the Son, and to the Holy Spirit shall be world without end. Amen. Father, Son.